So, I'm really delighted to be continuing our series in Significant Voices, Women Who Have Shaped History. So this is the third week out of four. And if you remember, Sarah in week one did a brilliant job of unpacking Deborah, who was one of the judges of Israel. And then last week, Lizette talked to us about Jesus interacting with the woman with the issue of blood and had this amazing encouragement and challenge for us to say yes to Jesus's invitation to courage and boldness. Are we going to say yes to that? So as we continue this series, I'd like us to focus in on two women who have a really tiny appearance in the Bible uh, that are perhaps not often talked about or recognized or their names are not that well known, yet their voices and their actions have had huge significance on a nation. And their names are Shifra and Pua. We heard of those? No, good, if we haven't, because that's who we're going to focus on this morning. And I've, we've kind of called them the unsung heroes, that sense of these heroes of the faith, heroes in worshipping God, in being obedient to God, yet aren't really noticed, Shifra and Pua. So where we often come close to the lives of these two women is with the story of Moses in Exodus. And many of us are probably familiar with his epic life story, this baby who was raised out of the water who was raised in Pharaoh's courts and became a prince and eventually the liberator of his people, the Israelites. We often know that story, right? Or we've watched The Prince of Egypt, one of the two. Um, but the story of, of, of Moses is the one we know, but perhaps we're less familiar with Shifra and Pua. And actually, they had this incredibly significant role in setting the stage for Moses to live and determine the course of an entire nation. So let's put this into... Its context. Where does this sit biblically? So we're going to be focusing this morning at the beginning of Exodus. But prior to that, at the close of Genesis, we have Joseph and his technical dream coat. And um, and Joseph had has kind of overcome his pretty horrendous life battles, including being sold into slavery by his jealous brothers to the Egyptians. We remember that, right? And he has found favor. He's been raised up and have become second in command over all of Egypt. He's got huge favor with Pharaoh. And Joseph's astute response to this um, forthcoming and widespread famine meant that Egypt was positioned to provide, not only for its own nation, but actually for those nations bordering it. And this is what pushed Joseph's brothers, who were still living in food-impoverished Canaan, to go to Egypt. So Joseph's brothers and, and Joseph... They come back together, they reconcile, and Joseph's brothers and all their family move over into Egypt. And we're told that that's about 70 in number. So that's Genesis 42 and onwards around there. And Pharaoh, the Pharaoh at that time, had great favor and held great honor for all of Joseph's family, for this around 70 in number, because of their connection to Joseph. Now, beginning of Exodus, hundreds of years have passed. And actually, this people group, just the 70, those descendants have exploded into a nation called the Hebrews. And in Exodus 1, it tells us that they grew exceedingly strong and the land was filled with them, which incidentally is exactly what God promised Abraham in Genesis 15 when he made a covenant with him that said, I will, uh, I will create a nation for you that's more than numbers of stars you can count in the sky. So that promise, that promise is coming into fruition. We're then told that a new king arose over Egypt. It says a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. 
And that's significant. What we need to understand by that is that this huge people group, the Hebrews, were now perceived as a threat to this new king. Along with that is understanding the geographical context of Egypt at that time, that actually it had nations surrounding it, bordering that country, who were a threat. And so Pharaoh, being military-minded, you'd assume, could see a potential alliance between the Hebrews and Egypt's enemies, and actually he wanted to suppress any kind of uprising. And so we see that Pharaoh, the Pharaoh at this time, attempts to limit the growth of the Hebrews. And so he does that by dehumanizing them systematically. So we see there's forced labor, there's oppression, there's slavery. But these attempts, however, are completely unsuccessful in reducing the Hebrews in number. In fact, the more they're oppressed, the more they grow. So Pharaoh has to have a new plan. And this is where we meet these amazing women, Shifra and Pua. So everyone all right? Stage is set. Exodus 1, 15 onwards. And before we do, I'm going to pray because we haven't yet. <laughs> Holy Spirit, I just ask you that you would just come and have your way for this next bit of time. You're already here. You're already doing what you want to do. And God, I just say I want to partner with everything that you have for us this morning. So Holy Spirit, come and have your way. We give you permission to do whatever you want to do. We have open hearts to you this morning, God. Amen. Exodus 1.15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but that the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So we see then that Pharaoh is strategic in this newest attempt to limit the growth of the Hebrews, sinking to a, a pretty despicable level of depravity, kill the male babies. He knows the midwives are the touch point to life and death, and his order is choose death. It's pretty horrendous, isn't it? And yet, here we come across these two women who are prepared to defy that decree. Now, it makes logical sense, I think, that they weren't the only two midwives that served all of the Hebrew women, which must, must have been great in number. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to assume they must have been in some kind of leadership or authority over the other midwives for them to be the ones that stood before Pharaoh. And therefore, for Pharaoh to have, been, to have noticed that his degree wasn't being carried out, they must have told these other midwives to also disobey his order or not told them about the order at all. That is incredibly dangerous for them. Whether it was just them, which is unlikely, or whether it's a number that they instructed to be disobedient, they were called to stand before the most powerful man in the world. His authority was beyond reach. With just the move of his hand they could lose their lives for their disobedience. We see that they're clever in their explanation to Pharaoh why, why baby boy is being born. They say the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
I don't know if that's true. I'd love to know. Maybe that's a question I'll ask in heaven. Like, we, we're not told biblically whether the Hebrew midwives um, were, were making that up, like an outright lie, whether that was the complete truth, or whether it's a bending of the truth. Like, maybe there was a scenario where they told the midwives to actually arrive late and intentionally miss the actual birth happening. We don't know that. No idea. But what we are told is what motivated them. They feared God. They feared God and they ignored Pharaoh's command. We don't know how these two women came to fear God. There's so much we don't know about these two women. We don't know if they were Egyptian or Hebrew, actually. There's a whole bunch of debate that goes on on the internet about whether they're Hebrew or Egyptian. I decided to not enlighten you on that. Um, But either way, what is clear is that their faith, their honor, their love for God was more important to them than following this evil command. And it's that one little phrase that I want us to unpack this morning. That one little phrase that I want to use that we see with Shifra and Pure as a launch pad into exploring what does it mean for us to be a people who fear God? I think what we experienced in worship just now was fearing God. I think what Sarah led us in was fearing God. What does it look like for us to be a people who fear God? And then really I want us to explore and unpack what is something that can stand in the way of that? What is something that we can be trapped in and not have freedom in that means that fearing God becomes really hard to do? Is that okay? I mean, it's what we're doing. So, the <laughs> fearing God. Do you know, as a teacher last week, I asked my children, is that okay? Do we all understand where we're up to? And a child put their hand up and they said, I don't know what you're talking about, Miss Sodges. Can you, is, what, what are we doing? And I generally could not think of a different way to explain the thing that I was trying to teach them. So I'd say, oh, do you know what? I'll come back to you and work with you one-on-one, which means I need time to think. So I'm glad no one has just said, no idea what we're doing, Emma, because that was it. I haven't got any other version of how to explain that. So fearing God, what do we mean? by being a people who fear God. I know a lot of us will know this, but it's really important to differentiate between the human reaction and response of feeling fear, feeling afraid, and being God-fearing. They're two different things. 1 John 4 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So that fear we need to be done with, That is not for us as people of Jesus, being afraid of punishment. God doesn't want us to cower like slaves before him. That's not the relationship we're invited into, and yet we're instructed to fear him. Both Moses and Jesus, in Deuteronomy and in Matthew 10, command us to love God supremely and to fear him supremely. We're instructed to do it, so what does that mean? I don't think they're mutually exclusive commands to love and to fear. I think they're two sides of the same coin. To fear God, to love him, is to worship him. I think the biblical understanding of fear should never be far from our hearts in how we think of our relationship with God. I think we can fall into danger if it does. One way to understand the fear of God a kind of a, an entryway in is that picture of a child as they relate to their mother or father. And because that mother or father are the kind of their source of comfort and love and safety and security, like the child dearly wants to please their mother and father. They don't do things to actively displease them. Like they want their, um, their recognition. They want their encouragement. 
I think that captures part of what it is to fear God. But we're not talking about an earthly mother or father here, are we? We are talking about the almighty God, El Shaddai, the creator of heaven and earth. I think to fear God is to come face to face with his perfection, with his beauty, with his wonder, with his justice, with his mercy, with his grace. And you know what? That is beautiful and it's to be feared, to be held with such awe and reverence and wonder and care. Being a God-fearing people means that stays front and center. When we become casual and careless and thoughtless in our relationship with God, I think fearing him has fallen a little bit by the wayside. Coming into his presence Serving him is not to be taken lightly. It is our privilege and our honor to be counted as children of God. And the God that we serve, there is no one who compares. There is no one who's greater. Psalms and Proverbs says a whole bunch of stuff on fearing God. In a very small nutshell, to fear God, it tells us, as we do that, we grow in knowledge of him. We grow in wisdom. We grow in hope. We grow in our security. Like There is fruit to what it looks like to fear God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we're to work towards complete holiness because we fear God. So because we see the perfection of the one that we worship, actually we want to partner with Holy Spirit's work in us to be sanctified, to be made new, to be refined, to be in that refiner's fire that Sarah was talking about this morning. We actually have a desire to position ourselves there because we want to reflect his perfection. That's what it is to fear God. It motivates us to partner with Holy Spirit in that sanctifying work. Isaiah, when prophetically talking about Jesus in chapter 11, says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus himself found delight in fearing God. It's good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. And God delights in us fearing him. 147 verse 10, this is perhaps now my favorite verse, and you'll see why in a minute. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Now, I especially love this verse because there is a guy at the gym that just loves to hitch up his shorts right up here and flex his leg muscles for all to see right next to your face, really close. I just want to kind of have this verse on a poster and say, the Lord is not impressed, nor are we. But God's delight is not in the strength of the horse. So that means it's not in in political and military power. It's not in in the pleasure of the legs of a man. That's actually talking about human strength. That's actually what it means. Um, But it is in those who fear him. God delights in us being a people who fear him. So the fear of the Lord motivates us to worship him and follow after him with all we have as we respond to his perfection. I think in the end, the fear of the Lord could be identified by one simple thing, obedience. Are we obedient to his voice, to his prompting? Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it hurts, even if we don't see the benefit, Shifra and Pua didn't actually, even if it goes against the grain of what our emotions are pushing us towards, will we be obedient? Will we love God with our yes? 
I will love you with my yes, with my obedience. Will we do that? It's a line from my favorite song. That's not just some half rhyme I've come up with. Um, and what we see in the example of Shifra and Pua is that their fear of God resulted in obedient action. They said yes, even with the very real consequence of it costing them their lives. They didn't know the crucial part their decision played within the larger biblical narrative. They hadn't watched The Prince of Egypt. They hadn't read the rest of Exodus. They didn't know what their part was. They were just obedient to that moment. And I think, if I can be uh, presumptive enough to say, we all want to be those people, right? We all want to be obedient people who say yes to Jesus. We're fearing him, having that awe and wonder of his perfection and his beauty is front and center. We want to be those people. But I want to spend the rest of this morning exploring something which I think can stand in opposition to that, and that is the fear of man. That's where we're going to land today. And I'll already give you some warning, it's where ministry is going to go. So as I'm doing this next bit, if you feel Holy Spirit is doing something in you, don't ignore it. Because there's freedom this morning. There's freedom from fear of man. There is freedom to be obedient to God and to be everything that he's called you to be. So Holy Spirit, again, we just say, just come. Give soft hearts to you. Amen. So fear of man, similarly to fear of God, it's not so much a sense of being afraid of other people. That's not what it's about. Fear of man is when we put a higher premium on what others think about us, or more importantly, what we perceive others think about us, than actually the voice of God. That's fear of man. Sarah, what you think is more important, that's fear of man. Where somebody else has a higher voice than God's. Absence of fear of man doesn't mean that we don't value people. It doesn't mean that we don't value advice. It doesn't mean that we're just downright obnoxious because we don't care what people think. That's not great. That isn't what the absence of fear of man looks like. But it does mean that we're not people who are guided by our thoughts of what others think, which then determine what actions we take or what we choose to say. And for a person in that mode, like every day becomes a performance. It's exhausting. It's a show. I can say that because I have been there. It's tiring. It's emotionally draining. And it separates us from being obedient to Holy Spirit. It just puts a massive barrier in the way. In Galatians 1, Paul couldn't be clearer. He says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For Paul, the two things stand in opposition. We cannot be listening to the voice of man and be trying to be obedient to that and be listening to the voice of God and be obedient to that. Sometimes they will converge, and that's great. But that can't be our motivation, is that we're trying to actually be obedient to the voice of man. Solomon makes it really clear that centering our lives on what others think is, is a deadly trap. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord should be safe. You see, the fear of man immobilizes us when we should be taking action. It gags us into silence when we should be speaking up. It creates an appetite for man's approval, actually an appetite that will never be satisfied. I don't mean we shouldn't celebrate and encourage people. Of course we should, and be celebrated and encouraged ourselves. It just that cannot be the foundation of our identity, of who we are, of how we're making our decisions. You see, the fear of man ultimately is a worship issue. 
just worship directed in the wrong place. And maybe for some of us this morning, there is a sense of actually having to redirect our gaze back on to our maker of heaven and earth. To redirect our worship 100% back onto him. What might be then some um, kind of red flags for us to recognize if fear of man is having influence in any areas of my life? I've got five things. This is not exhaustive, but this is five things that I've all experienced. So I thought, let's go with these. You're about to find out about some of my inner world. One, being on a quest for approval and for likes. Now, we all want to be liked. Of course we do. No one goes out of their way to be disliked. That's ridiculous. But actually, when our motivation and our desire is that we are approved of and we are liked, we've gone a little bit astray. We're in danger of fear of man being the voice that is the one dictating what actions we're going to be taking. And ultimately, if that goes, um, if that goes unchecked in us, then it will create us being people pleasers. That's our motivation in life, is to make sure everyone's happy and be pleasing everybody around us. The voice of Holy Spirit is kind of diminished when we're in that mode. Secondly, trying to impress. Being the center of attention, receiving appreciation and admiration, but particularly at the expense of others. I know I've done that. I know I've been in conversations where, for whatever reason, there's been a particular person I'm trying to impress, and so, for some reason, I speak down on the other person present in the conversation in order to big myself up. Like, it's ugly, right? We don't want to be those people. And I think part of the reason why we do that is because of this fear of man. Avoiding the potential for embarrassment. Again, no one for the most part likes to look like feel embarrassed, do they? No one goes out of their way to look foolish. But it's the potential for that that means that we can be putting up walls and barriers that prevent us from stepping out, that prevent us from building relationship, that prevent us from having that conversation. Because we want to we wanna minimize the risk of feeling embarrassed. Fourthly, minimizing the risk of rejection. Now, rejection is painful, isn't it? No one wants to be rejected either. But actually, when fear of man plays its part, what that rejection does is it, we internalize it and it says to us, who I am is being rejected. Who I am is not okay. And that's where shame comes in. Number five, having an internal running commentary. Have you ever had that where you just have this endless commentary on how you perceive other people um, think, think about you, what they, you think they think about you, and you have a running commentary on which course of action you might take depending on how other people might perceive it? It's crippling. So how can we respond? I think it's important to understand where that desire for approval comes from. Like we might kind of relegate it to being the sense of, well, it's part of the fall or it's just part of our humanity or it's, it's like a, a flawed part of our beings. I don't think it is. I think God's put that desire for approval in us absolutely intentionally because it uniquely reveals who and what we love in a way that nothing else quite does. And as humans, we instinctively crave meaning, don't we? We find meaning in our relationships. We find meaning in our jobs, in our families. And that's great, but that cannot be the foundation of who we are outside of God. So what can we do about it? Before we go into ministry, this is like a 101 in dealing with stuff going on internally. 
One, confess and repent. Two incredibly powerful things, to confess and to repent. Confession is where you recognize something, you name it, and you say what it is. I confess that the fear of man is having an influence in this area of my life. Where we willfully choose to keep something hidden, or we don't know about it yet, because Holy Spirit hasn't shown us, or we willfully are blind to it, Holy Spirit doesn't have permission to deal with it. So we need to recognize what's going on in us and name it. Then repentance. Again, repentance in two seconds. To change the way that you think about something. It's an opportunity to look at your own thinking that maybe does not match up with the truth of God and say, God, come and show me your way of thinking and I want to partner with that. It's an opportunity to do 180 in that area. Secondly, revelation. Only by Holy Spirit. Revelation of what is going on in us that brings about that fruit of fear of man. What are the roots going on? Only Holy Spirit can do that. Thirdly, the truth. Truth of who he is, truth of who we are in him. We need to listen to the voice that really counts. A foundation of identity based on man's approval is not going to satisfy and it's not going to be the safe and secure foundation that the voice of God and his truth is. Identity has to come through the wonder of God's grace, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the only basis for our identity, that we are sons and daughters. So that's what I felt like Holy Spirit wanted to, to, uh, for us to go after this morning. So if you know, if you're sitting here, and if it's anything like me, a slightly racing heart and slightly sweaty palms because you think, okay, Holy Spirit's doing something, guaranteed it's not going to feel comfortable at all. But know that it is for his good and it is for your good. That God is bringing stuff up in us so that we can be purified and refined to be more and more like Jesus and be more and more free as we walk this earth. Jesus has won complete freedom for us. And we don't need to settle for anything less. So if you're able to, I'd love for you to stand with me.